Hello, everyone, and welcome back. How do you do? Sorry, I know I have uh, just sort of remembered. Yeah, I try to come in a little softer on these, usually, and uh, I did definitely forget to do so this time. I do apologize. Everyone, thank you so very much for joining me on this fine Thursday afternoon. How y'all doing? Traumatized mortals in chat wondering, how is everyone? But also, what's your favorite food? Mine is either butter chicken or poutine. And uh, for those of you who are not aware, poutine is a French fry dish smothered in gravy and cheese curds, which each of those things individually, I mean, I'm not like huge on gravy, but I certainly don't mind it, but each of those things sounds fine. All of them together sounds pretty wretched. Um, and of, of course, I'm, I must be wrong because of how many people absolutely love it. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't understand how it is that french fries don't turn into like the most loose, soggy paste under the weight of gravy. So maybe you can help me out with that one, traumatized mortal. Hello, Nat Grace. How do you do? Good to have you in here. Uh, welcome. My name is Sam and this is Sidecar Stories. How'd you find us? I'm always curious to ask people that. Um, because, uh, frankly, a, a lot of people don't find us. Uh, we're kind of a, we're, we're a secret little hidden spot in here, Nat Grace. Uh, I'm wondering what brings you in. Uh, Miss Massica says, peanut butter. Hello, Muffin Man. Hello, Heart Hook. Good to have y'all in today. Uh, Courier Six says, my favorite is lamb vindaloo or, like, almost any Ethiopian food, and that's my favorite. Interesting, Courier Six. Interesting. Uh, I went with either a good kebab plate or some good tacos. Uh, either one, some tacos with, uh, um, I don't know, not too, not too packed. Something that recognizes the importance of a good tortilla. Um, uh, and then honestly with that, I will take lots of different combinations. Really love al pastor. I like something with a little bit of crispiness to it. Um, have never actually tried birria tacos, but those seem like, oh boy. Those seem very attractive. Oh, Natalie! Hello, Natalie! How are you doing? <laughs> I didn't know who I'd be looking out for. Natalie, hello! Um, I don't know if you're sticking with us for a long time tonight or just in to say hi, but hello. How do you do? Natalie, uh, folks, uh, for those of you who do not know, uh, NatGrace23 over in Twitch chat right now, um, aka Natalie, unless, unless there's another Nat that I don't know of, um, but uh, Natalie was uh, my my ally over in <laughs> the Coop ORG. Um, those of you who like who were sort of following me throughout that, I know Gems was super into it for a while. Melty was in there. Um, <laughs> y'all, uh, thank you for for jumping in there and checking it out. I had no idea what I was doing. I think y'all saw that pretty clearly. But Natalie was very helpful in sort of showing me the ropes, showing me like how things worked. If I had a question, I sort of had a general idea that Nat was going to be able to help me out with it. Um, and uh, we held in there. Natalie, we held in there. I felt like, I, honestly, I, I was very pleased with my placement in that. I, I'm glad I didn't have to get to the, all the way to the end and deal with some of the more complex moments there. The only thing, the only thing that I wasn't happy about with that ORG was that Natalie didn't win. <laughs> that was my, that was my one thing. Uh, I voted for Rob in the end because Natalie wasn't on the list, but if Natalie had been on the list, I, I went into the speeches, I read all three of them, I wanted to give everybody a chance, but no no one of them, honestly, <laughs> if it had been the three of them and Natalie, 
Um, no one of those speeches would have impressed me so much that I wouldn't have still voted for Natalie. Natalie could have just not written a speech. But uh, Natalie, hey, good to have you in here, and uh, thank you very much for all of your help over there. Thanks for showing me the ropes. Um, it was a really interesting experience, and I learned a ton that I'm hoping to apply to different projects over here in Sidecar Storyland. We'll see. We'll see. Traumatized Modal says, Hey, Sam, I'm going to light an incense, so lavender or white sage? I'm going to say white sage, Traumatized Modal, so that you can describe to me what that smells like. Um, obviously, I know sage mo mostly from sausage, frankly. That's, you know, like, sausage and Thanksgiving are my big exposures to sage in general. Um, but uh, especially as incense, I wonder how it, you know, how is it different? That, how does the smell change as incense versus just the spice, which is how I typically encounter it? Um, Courier6 says, <laughs> I didn't know what they were called for ages and kept calling them Dippy Dapper Tacos. Well, Courier6, when you open Dippy Dapper Tacos wherever you live, do send me an invite because it sounds pretty good. <laughs> oh boy, oh boy. Yeah, Sandra says, if that was the worst part, then, uh, yeah, not really a big deal. No, no, it was a pretty, it was a pretty fun overall. Not bad. All right, folks, why are we here today? So we got, you know, we got somebody new in, got to button up, make sure that, uh, make sure we, <laughs> we we show off all of the, all of the interesting uh, nooks and crannies of Sidecar Stories. Uh, no, my name is Sam, this is Sidecar Stories, and this is a channel where we tell stories to each other, with each other. Um, yesterday, we had our episode two of Night School at Vesperal Academy. This is our tabletop role-playing game uh, uh, campaign that we do on Wednesdays. Uh, Tuesdays are on a bit of a hiatus now, as we mentioned, but when we come back, we're gonna be doing some Sherlock Holmes, and of course, here we are, Thursdays, The Hunger Games. The Hunger Games! And we have made quite a bit of progress already. Um, anybody super new around here may, may not know that we have actually read all the way through the entire uh, Harry Potter series. Um, trans rights or human rights. Uh, I, I'm going to be tagging that on pretty regularly from here on out. Um, we have read through the entire Percy Jackson and the Olympians series, just the first five books, the, the, the original five. And now we are, uh, we're, we're more, the, I mean, we're most of the way through the Hunger Games, book one. Uh, today we're going to be reading chapters 22, 23, and 24, which means we have to do a bit of review chapters 19 through 21, the very beginning of part three, The Victor. Chapter 19, we come back and uh, this is, of course, after the, the, the rules have changed, right? Um, uh, there is, there is this, this we, we find out that there's a rule change. Um, two victors can win this, two tributes can win the games, as long as they're both from the same district. At this point, only a few people are left with the potential to do that. Uh, Rue has unfortunately already uh, uh, passed out of the running for that. We're getting into spoiler territory, so anybody wanting to sort of listen from the beginning, go ahead and check out uh, Flying Sidecar. Check out Flying Sidecar over on uh, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and then, of course, if you're looking for our tabletop RPG wing, you can look up Side Cannons. And if you're looking for the classics, most of them are not uploaded yet, um, you can look for Vintage Sidecar. Again, all those wherever you get your podcasts. So the rules have changed. PETA and Katniss could both win this together. 
Interesting. Interesting. Well, what are they going to do about this? Katniss immediately tries to go find Peta, um, but Peta is grievously wounded. Very, very badly wounded. Uh, a terrible wound in the leg is kind of the big deal, and over the three chapters, they spend their time together, Katniss realizing that right now, Peta's more of a liability than an asset. The two of them find a little cave to hide out in, and Katniss does what she can to sort of keep him alive while also looking out for other tributes. Um, in uh, chapter 20, they get a, a little bit of help. Some broth comes down uh, from a sponsor. It's good because this is about all that PETA can keep down right now but he's got blood poisoning. He needs something badly, something that even sponsors couldn't get their hands on. It's too expensive, but the game makers can. They're trying to put together, I'll put this in quotes, interesting games, right? And so they have to keep people alive. If everyone just sort of dies off in a cave, then that's not very interesting. So they call for a feast, once again, in some quotes, because this, this, this feast does not involve any food, as far as we know. Um, it includes something, a backpack, for each tribute, or at least for each district with tributes still alive, um, four backpacks, each one containing something that that group desperately needs. Now, we don't know what the other groups need. Maybe they're not so great at finding food. We know that Katniss has recently destroyed the food uh, that the um, both of the career tributes and Foxface uh, were getting their food from. So maybe it's food, but we know PETA needs some some really advanced medicine to stop this blood poisoning and uh, prevent him from just dying here in this cave. He doesn't want Katniss to go and retrieve it, but she does. She does. She manages to get to it just in time. Foxface had been hiding out uh, inside the, the cornucopia and darts out, runs off with the backpack before anyone else uh, manages to sort of make a move. But she doesn't know where Cato and Thresh are at she makes a dash for it, and uh, she very quickly uh, finds herself at the knife point of the career tribute running with Cato. Now, this tribute uh, is absolutely going to kill Katniss. She ambushes Katniss, uh, gets on top of her, has got her pinned down, and that's when Thresh shows up. Thresh, um, of course, from the same district as Rue. He pulls this career tribute off of Katniss and kills her pretty quickly before turning on Katniss, but doesn't kill Katniss because Katniss reveals that she was with Rue in Rue's last moments and indeed treated Rue very well. They were allied together and um, Katniss made a pretty touching, significant tribute uh, to Rue after Rue's passing. So Thresh spares her once, so as not to owe anyone anything. Seems like he feels maybe the same way about owing people things that Katniss does. Cato shows up, and Katniss escapes just in time with the medicine, nothing else, uh, but uh, Thresh does manage to steal the backpack belonging to Cato, so whatever it is Cato needs, he doesn't have it, so Katniss thinks he's probably going to follow Thresh. Uh, all this to say, Katniss, pretty well injured, stumbles through the forest back to the hiding place with, um, with Peta and manages to, just before passing out of blood loss from, you know, cuts on her face and the rest of her body, manages just in time to jab this syringe into Peta, get him the medicine he needs, and 
she passes out. And that is where we were as of last week. Now this week, as I say, chapters 22, 23, and 24. And without further ado, let us begin. Chapter 22 The sound of rain drumming on the roof of our house gently pulls me toward consciousness. I fight to return to sleep, though, wrapped in a warm cocoon of blankets, safe at home. I'm vaguely aware that my head aches. Possibly I have the flu, and this is why I've been allowed to stay in bed, even though I can tell I've been asleep for a long time. My mother's hand strokes my cheek, and I don't push it away as I would in wakefulness, never wanting her to know how much I crave that gentle touch. How much I miss her, even though I still don't trust her. And then... There's a voice. The wrong voice, not my mother's, and I'm scared. Katniss, it says. Katniss, can you hear me? My eyes are open and the sense of security vanishes. I'm not home, not with my mother. I'm in a dim, chilly cave, my bare feet freezing despite the cover, the air tainted with the unmistakable smell of blood. The haggard, pale face of a boy slides into view, and after an initial jolt of alarm, I feel better. Peter. Hey, he says. Good to see your eyes again. How long have I been out? I ask. Not sure. Woke up yesterday evening and you were lying next to me in a very scary pool of blood, he says. I think it stopped finally, but I wouldn't set up or anything. I gingerly lift my hand to my head and find it bandaged. This simple gesture leaves me weak and dizzy. Peter holds a bottle to my lips and I drink thirstily. You're better, I say. Much better. Whatever you shot into my arm did the trick, but this morning all the swelling in my leg was gone, almost. He doesn't seem angry about my tricking him, drugging him, and running off to the feast. Maybe I'm just too beat up and I'll hear about it later when I'm stronger. But for right now, he's all gentleness. Did you eat? I ask. I'm sorry to say that I gobbled down three pieces of that gruesling for I realised... It might have to last for a while. Don't worry, I'm back on a strict diet. No, no, it's good. You need to eat. I'll go hunting soon, I say. No, too soon, alright? You just let me take care of you for a while. I don't really seem to have much of a choice. Peter feeds me bites of grusling and raisins and makes me drink plenty of water. He rubs some warmth back into my feet and wraps them in his jacket before tucking the sleeping bag up around my chin. Your boots and socks are still damp and the weather's not helping much. There's a clap of thunder and I see lightning electrify the sky through an opening in the rocks. 
Rain drips through several holes in the ceiling. But Peta has built sort of a canopy over my head and upper body by wedging the square of plastic into the rock above me. Wonder what brought on this storm? I mean, who's the target? says Peter. Kaito and Thresh, I say without thinking. Foxface will be in her den somewhere. And Clove, she cut me, and then... My voice trails off. I know that Clove is dead. I saw it in the sky last night. Did you kill her? No. Thresh broke her skull with a rock. It's lucky that he didn't catch you too, says Peter. The memory of the feast returns full force and I feel sick. He did, but he let me go. And then of course I have to tell him. About things I've kept to myself because he was too sick to ask and I wasn't ready to relive anyway. Like the explosion and my ear and Ruse dying and the boy from District 1 and the bread. All of which leads to what happened with Thresh and how he was paying off a debt of sorts. He let you go because he didn't want to owe you anything, says Peter in disbelief. Yeah, I don't expect you to understand it. You've always had enough. But if you'd lived in the same, I wouldn't have to explain. And don't try. Obviously I'm too dim to get it. It's like the bread, how I never seem to get over owing you for that. The bread? What, from when we were kids? I think we can let that go. I mean, you just brought me back from the dead. But you didn't know me. We'd never spoken. Besides, it's the first gift that's always the hardest to pay back. I wouldn't have even been here if you hadn't helped me then, I say. Why did you, anyway? Why? <laughs> you know why, Peter says. I give my head a slight, painful shake. Hamish hey, said that you take a lot of convincing. Hamish? Hey, What's he got to do with it? Uh, nothing. So, Kato and Thresh, huh? I guess it's too much to hope that they'll simultaneously destroy each other. But the thought only upsets me. I think we would like Thresh. I think he'd be our friend back in District 12. And let's hope that Kato kills him, so we don't have to, says Peter grimly. I don't want Kato to kill Thresh at all. I don't want anyone else to die, but this is absolutely not the kind of thing that victors go around saying in the arena. Despite my best efforts, I can feel tears starting to pool in my eyes. Peter looks at me in concern. What is it? Are you in a lot of pain? I give him another answer because it is equally true, but can be taken as a brief moment of weakness instead of a terminal one. I want to go home, Peter. I say plaintively, like a small child. You will? I promise, he says, and bends over to give me a kiss. Want to go home now? I tell you what. You go back to sleep and dream of home, and you'll be there for real, before you know it. All right? All right, I whisper. Wake me up if you need me to keep watch. I'm good and rested, thanks to you and Haymitch. Besides, who knows how long this will last, he says. What does he mean? The storm? 
The brief respite it brings us? The games themselves? I don't know. But I'm sad and tired. Too tired to ask. It's evening when Peter wakes me again. The rain has turned to a downpour, sending streams of water through our ceiling, where earlier there had only been drips. Peter has placed the broth pot under the worst one and repositioned the plastic to deflect most of it from me. I feel a little bit better, able to sit up without getting too dizzy, and I'm absolutely famished. So is Peter. It's clear he's been waiting for me to wake up to eat and is eager to get started. There's not much left. Two pieces of grusling, a small mishmash of roots, a handful of dried fruit. Should we try to ration it? Peter asks. Nope, I shall finish it. The grusling's getting old anyway, and the last thing that we need is get sick on half-spoiled food, I say, dividing the food into two equal piles. We try and eat slowly, but we're both so hungry we're done in a couple of minutes. My stomach is in no way satisfied. Tomorrow's a hunting day, I say. <laughs> I'm not going to be much help with that, Peter says. Never hunted before. I'll kill you, cook, I say. And you can always gather. I wish there was some sort of bread bush out there, says Peter. The bread they sent me from District 11 was still warm, I say with a sigh. Here, chew these. I hand him a couple of mint leaves and pop a few in my own mouth. It's hard to even see the projection in the sky, but it's clear enough to know there were no more deaths today. So, Cato and Thresh haven't had it out yet. Where did Thresh go? I mean, what's on the far side of that circle? I ask Peter. It's a field. Uh, as far as you can see, it's full of grasses, some as high as my shoulders. I don't know, maybe some, some of them are green? Uh, there are patches of different colours, but there are no paths says Peter. I bet some of them are green. I bet Thresh knows which ones too. Did you go in there? No. Nobody really wanted to track Thresh down in that grass. It's got a sinister feeling to it. Every time I look at that field, all I can think about are hidden things. Snakes and rabid animals, quicksand, Peter says. There could be anything in there. I don't say so, but Peter's words remind me of the few warnings that they give us. I don't say so, but Peter's words remind me of the warnings they give us about not going beyond the fence in District 12. I can't help, for a moment, comparing him with Gale, who would see that field as a potential source of food as well as a threat. Thresh certainly did. It's not that Peter's soft, exactly, but he's proved he's not a coward. But there are things you don't question... Too much, I guess, when your home always smells like baking bread. Whereas Gale questions everything. What would Peter think of the irreverent banter that passes between us as we break the law each day? Would it shock him? The things we say about Pan Am? Gale's tirades against the Capitol? Maybe there's a bread bush in that field. Maybe that's why Thresh looks better fed now than when he started the games. Either that or he's got some very generous sponsors. I wonder what we'd have to do to get Hamish to send us some bread. I raise my eyebrows before I remember he doesn't know about the message Hamish sent us a couple of nights ago. One kiss equals one pot of broth. It's not the sort of thing I can blurt out either. 
To say my thoughts aloud would be tipping off the audience that the romance has been fabricated to play on their sympathies, and that would result in no food at all. Somehow, believably, I've got to start to get things back on track. Something simple to start with. I reach out and take his hand. Well, he probably used up a lot of resources helping me to knock you out, I say mischievously. Yeah, about that, says Peter, entwining his fingers in mine. Don't try something like that again. Or what? I ask. Or, or, eh. He can't think of anything good. You just give me a minute. What's the problem? I say with a grin. The problem is that we're both still alive, which only reinforces the idea in your mind that you did the right thing. I did do the right thing. No, don't. Katniss, don't. His grip tightens, hurting my hand, and there's real anger in his voice. Don't, don't die for me, all right? You won't be doing me any favours. I'm startled by his intensity, but recognise an excellent opportunity for getting food, so I try to keep up. Maybe I did it for myself, Peter. Do you ever think about that? Maybe you're not the only one who, who worries about, about what it would be like if... I fumble. I'm not as smooth with words as Peter. And while I was talking, the idea of actually losing Peter hits me again, and I realize how much I don't want him to die. And it's not about the sponsors. And it's not about what will happen back home. And it's not just that I don't want to be alone. It's him. I do not want to lose the boy with the bread. If... what? Katniss, he says softly. I wish I could pull the shutters closed, blocking out this moment from the prying eyes of Pan Am. Even if it means losing food, whatever I'm feeling, it's no one's business but mine. That's exactly the kind of topic that Hamish told me to steer clear of, I say evasively, although Hamish never said anything of the kind. In fact, he's probably cursing me out right now for dropping the ball during such an emotionally charged moment, but Peter somehow catches it. Then I'll just have to fill in the blanks myself, he says, and moves into me. This is the first kiss that we're both fully aware of. Neither of us is hobbled by sickness or pain or simply unconsciousness. Our lips neither burning with fever nor icy cold. This is the first kiss where I actually feel stirring inside my chest. Warm and curious, this is the first kiss that makes me want another. But I don't get it. Well, I do get a second kiss, but it's just a light one on the tip of my nose because Pete has been distracted. I think your wound is bleeding again. All right, come on, lie down. It's bedtime anyway. My socks are dry enough to wear now. I make Peter put his jacket back on. The damp cold seems to cut right down to my bones, so he must be half frozen. I insist on taking the first watch, too, although neither of us think it's likely either one will come to this weather. But he won't agree unless I'm in the bag, too, and I'm shivering so hard it's pointless to object. In stark contrast to two nights ago, when I felt Peter was a million miles away, I'm struck by his immediacy now. As we settle in, he pulls my head down to use his arm as a pillow. 
The other rests protectively over me, even when he goes to sleep. No one has held me like this in such a long time. Since my father died, and I stopped trusting my mother, no one else's arms have made me feel this safe. With the aid of the glasses, I lie watching the drips of water splatter to the cave floor. Rhythmic and lulling, several times I drift off briefly and then snap awake, guilty and angry with myself. After three or four hours, I can't help it. I have to rouse Peta because I can't keep my eyes open. He doesn't seem to mind. Tomorrow, when it's dry, I can find us a place so high in the trees we can both sleep in peace. I promise as I drift off. But tomorrow is no better in terms of weather. The deluge continues. I, <laughs> that was the wackest way. There are two pronunciations for the word deluge. Deluge or deluge. Um, and uh, I went ahead and just tried to do both of them in the same word. Let's, let's, let's start at the top of this paragraph, huh? But tomorrow is no better in terms of weather. The deluge continues as if the game makers are intent on washing us all away. The thunder is so powerful it seems to shake the ground. Pete is considering heading out anyway to scavenge for food, but I tell him that in this storm it would be pointless. He won't be able to see three feet in front of his face, and he'll only end up getting soaked to the skin for his troubles. He knows I'm right, but the gnawing in our stomachs is becoming painful. The day drags on, turning into evening, and there's no break in the weather. Haymitch is our only hope, but nothing is forthcoming, either from lack of money, everything will cost an exorbitant amount now, or because he's dissatisfied with our performance. Probably the latter. I'd be the first to admit we're not exactly riveting today. Starving, weak from injuries, trying not to reopen wounds. We're sitting huddled together in a sleeping bag, yes, but mostly to keep warm. The most exciting thing either of us does is nap. I'm not really sure how to ramp up the romance. The kiss last night was nice, but working up to another will take some forethought. There are girls in the seam, some of the merchant girls too, who navigate these waters so easily. But I've never had much time or use for it. Anyway, just a kiss isn't enough anymore, clearly, because if it was, we would have gotten some food last night. My instincts tell me Haymitch isn't just looking for physical affection. He wants something more personal. The sort of stuff he was trying to get me to tell him about when we were practicing for the interview. I'm rotten at it, but Pete is not. Maybe the best approach is to get him talking. Peter, I say lightly. You said at the interview you'd had a crush on me forever. When did forever start? Oh, let's see. I guess the first day of school. We were five. You had on a red plaid dress and your hair is in two braids instead of one. My father pointed you out when we were waiting to line up, Peter says. Your father? Why? He said, You see that little girl? I wanted to marry her mother, but she ran off with a coal miner. What? You're making that up? I exclaim. No, no, true story, Peter says. And I said, a coal miner. Why did she want a coal miner if she could have had you? And he said, because when he sings, 
even the birds stop to listen. That's true. They do. I mean, they did, I say. I'm stunned and surprisingly moved, thinking of the baker telling this to Peter. It strikes me that my own reluctance to sing, my own dismissal of music, might not really be that I think it's a waste of time. It might be because it reminds me too much of my father. So that day, in music assembly, the teacher asked who knew the volley song. Your hands shot straight up in the air. She stood you up on the stool and had you sing it for us, and I swear every bird outside the windows fell silent. <laughs> oh, please, I say, laughing. Nope, it happened. And right when your song ended, I knew. Just like your mother. I was a goner, Peter says. And then for the next eleven years, I tried to work up the nerve to talk to you. Without success, I add. Without success. So, in a way, my name being drawn in the raping was a real piece of luck, says Peter. For a moment, I'm almost foolishly happy. And then confusion sweeps over me. Because we're supposed to be making this stuff up, playing at being in love, not actually being in love. But Peter's story has a ring of truth to it. That part about my father and the birds... And I did sing on the first day of school, although I don't remember the song, and that red plaid dress. There was one, a hand-me-down to Prim that got washed to rags after my father's death. It would explain another thing, too, why Peter took a beating to give me the bread on that awful hollow day. So, if these details are true, could it all be true? You have a remarkable memory, I say haltingly. I remember everything about you, says Peter, tucking a loose strand of hair behind my ear. You're the one who wasn't paying attention. I am now. Well, I don't have much competition here. I want to draw away to close the shutters again, but I know I can't. It's as if I can hear Haymitch whispering in my ear, Say it! Say it! I swallow hard and get the words out. You don't have much competition anywhere. And this time, it's me who leans in. Our lips have just barely touched when the clunk outside my window makes us Outside the window? Where did I get... That word window is nowhere in this paragraph. I doubt the word window comes up in this chapter. What am I talking about? Our lips have just barely touched when the clunk outside makes us jump. My bow comes up, an arrow ready to fly, but there's no other sound. Pita peers through the rocks and then gives a whoop. Before I can stop him, he's out in the rain and then handing something to me, a silver parachute attached to a basket. I rip and open it once, and inside there's a feast. Fresh rolls, goat cheese, apples, and best of all, a tureen of that incredible lamb stew on wild rice. The very dish I told Caesar Flickerman was the most impressive thing that the capital had to offer. 
Peter wriggles back inside, his face lit up like the sun. <laughs> I guess Hamish finally got tired of watching us starve. I guess so, I answer. But in my head, I can hear Hamish's smug, if slightly exasperated words. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for, sweetheart. It seems that Katniss and Peeta are finding a bit of a rhythm, but how is it that that rhythm has come about? Katniss, of course, is thinking in terms of acting, telling lies, making things up for the cameras, because this is what makes the show great, and if the show is great, they get more sponsors. But Peeta seems to find his way into it so easily. Why is that? Could it be because Peeta really does feel all these things? And what did he mean when he said, Hamish said it would take you a while to come around to it? We'll have to find out soon. But that is your Cheddar Break question. Is Peter really this into Katniss? Of course, we could look at this as sort of a, um, you know, a silly teen drama, but let's also look at this from the perspective of character development, right? This character has been doing some really, frankly, like, incredible things. Um, they all have, of course, uh, but, but some of these, uh, many of these things that PETA has done here in the games and even beforehand, a lot of them are to protect or help Katniss. It seems like it's really... Uh, he, he keeps Katniss in mind even in these moments, such as when PETA was allied with the career tributes. Even in those moments when... Katniss doesn't sort of see it, it seems like Peta is really thinking about her and what he can do to improve her situation. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, Sir David Goodvibe says, well, that's a nice cave with windows and all. Not too shabby. Yeah, they did find, they actually just found a full house there in the middle of the arena. <laughs> Oh, boy, oh, boy. Uh, Traumatized Mortal says, I've previously read this series, so I know the answer, and I don't want... Oh, and I want to spoil it, but I won't. <laughs> I appreciate you. Whoa! Hello, Birdie Rage! Raiding with a party of 15. Hello, Raiders! How do you all do? It's great to have you all in here! Hello, folks! Uh, let's see, Dr. McMarco. Y'all caught us at a pretty good moment here. Oh, a little... <laughs> Little little bridge of nose pets. Our cats love those. Um, I don't know what this freaky, like, Mr. Blobby-looking emote is that's currently getting the nose pets. But hey, there you go. Uh, Birdie Rage, Dr. McMarco, hello, everyone, and welcome. You caught us at a pretty good time. We are in between chapters right now. If you want to get caught up on where the heck we're at right now, my name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. This is Thursday, which means this is Flying Sidecar. It's our Thursday show where uh, this is a voice actor's venture through some stories we all love. Right now, we are reading through The Hunger Games. We have have read through Harry Potter. We've read through Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Um, 
we are going to, uh, we're going to continue to read this. We have just finished chapter 22, and today we're going to continue to read chapters 23 and 24. But if you want to find out more about this channel, including links all over the place, go ahead and use the links command. That'll take you to the link tree, um, but that'll get you to the Discord. That'll get you, um, basically the Discord is the most important spot. But if you're looking for the back episodes of this, go ahead and check out, wherever you find your podcasts, Flying Sidecar. Now, of course, sidecar stories. We love stories here. We love telling them to each other. We don't. We also love telling them with each other. So this is the moment when I'm going to go ahead and uh, pitch my Wednesday show as well, because Wednesdays are our day for tabletop RPGs. So if you like pina coladas and getting caught in a, a rainstorm with some friends who uh, may or may not be vampires or ghosts or lichen. Well, come and hang out on Wednesdays. Uh, Night School at Vesperal Academy. This is a secret school in uh, the world we've been homebrewing for multiple years at this point. Um, uh, a secret school for Duskin. Duskin, of course, being the uh, sort of blanket term for vampires and ghosts, werewolves. So if you want sort of a spooky Hogwarts vibe, and again, I've said it multiple times, but... Trans rights are human rights. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I feel the need to tag that on nowadays. Unfortunate, but true. Um, so if you want sort of a, a spooky Hogwarts, a little bit of slice of life, a little bit of uh, classic swords and sorcery adventure, come hang out on Wednesdays, noon Pacific time. Uh, and then, of course, we're on a bit of a hiatus on our Tuesday show, Vintage Sidecar. Uh, but uh, on Tuesdays, we're, when we come back, we're going to be reading Sherlock Holmes. So, y'all, Tuesdays, Vintage Sidecar. Wednesdays, Side Cannons! And Thursday's flying sidecar. So thank you all very much for joining me. Um, this is a good time because I'm not going to be taking my break until after the next chapter. So we've got our chatterbreak question. My chatterbreak question for all of you is: Is Peter really feeling? Is, is he craving this wave as much as he seems like he is? Um, because as we as we sort of try to identify motivations, right? It's one of the big things about analyzing characters is talking about what motivates them. Why do they do the things that they do? Um, I want you to take a look. Take a look sort of backwards through some of Peter's history. As he has been uh, sort of doing his best in these games, has he, has he really been acting this whole time? And if not, why? There we go, folks. There is our Chatterbreak question. Uh, Nat Grace says, I've read this series upwards of 50 times in the 10 years since it came out. Whoa. <laughs> Nat, have you really read it 50 times? That's nuts. I still love analyzing the relationship between Katniss and Peeta. It is a it is a pretty well constructed one. Um, it, it is complicated enough to be interesting, uh, simple enough to be followable. Um, it, it's it's definitely interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Birdie Rage says Halfbit had mentioned your channel before, and I've been looking to raid you for uh, uh, since like a few weeks. Oh, fantastic! Cool, cool. Well, Birdie Rage, welcome. I'm curious how you know Halfbit, but uh, welcome to the stream, y'all. Lovely to have you here. Let's talk a bit of review, and then the, uh, I, I basically, I'm going to spend like 120 seconds on review, and then we're going to go into our next chapter. Um, so, as I mentioned, probably spoiler territories coming up. If you want to go check out back episodes, please look for Flying Sidecar on Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. Um, chapter 22. I mean, I'll give, I guess, a bit of review for the whole book really briefly. Uh, Katniss Everdeen is from a little district... <laughs> In Pan Am, uh, a, uh, a, a sort of conglomeration in the future of the United States. Um, they they make coal, they, they mine coal there, and uh, she gets chosen for the Hunger Games, in which uh, the capital sort of uses uh, these yearly games to squash rebellions, to keep the different districts 
currently 12 in all, um, from getting too friendly with one another in the aftermath of a, a big war that went down. So it's a, it's a method for control, um, uh, in addition to the other methods for control, like the contrived scarcities uh, that are present um, and oppressive to all the districts. Katniss is doing all right. There's a boy and a girl from each district, um, but uh, she has just recently linked back up with Peta, the boy from her district. Previously, they were expected to kill each other before the end, but now it's down to just the two of them, Thresh and Cato. There are four, there are four remaining tributes. Um, and uh, between the four of them, Peta and Katniss are the only ones who are still from the same district. Now, this is important because they've made an interesting rule change. Two districts, uh, excuse me, one, uh, uh, two tributes can win if they're both from the same district. Hmm. Well, Peta and Katniss are the only ones in that position, but it makes them allies rather than enemies now. Um, they've been hiding out in this cave, and over time, uh, they have been sort of developing this thing. It's part of the reason why the rules were changed. Um, oh, excuse me. Yes, Traumatized Mortal. There's another, there's a fifth tribute that's still alive, Foxface, uh, which is the, the name that Katniss has been sort of nicknaming her. Thank you very much, Traumatized Mortal. Um, uh, but that's the thing, Foxface sort of like hides out in the wilderness and is sort of, even Katniss forgot Foxface at one point um, when tallying up the remaining tributes. Uh, but uh, they, Katniss and Peeta have sort of, they've been maintaining this, this ruse, this facade of a star-crossed romance between the two of them. Um, it, it, has, uh, it has played pretty well with audiences, it seems. It seems like uh, it is <laughs> like uh, it has sort of gained them some favor, and has certainly gained them some sponsors, which is important for survival here. Um, and uh, they've they've been maintaining this quite handily, but Peter's always been better at it than Katniss. And now, as Katniss sort of gets him talking, trying to sort of play the system for for some more sponsorship help. She starts to realize as Peter talks about the moment when he fell for her. She he probably she probably would have put this in quotes a moment ago, but as she listens, she starts to realize he just seems like he's being honest. There's a ring of truth. He's remembering things that really were part of their shared history together. Um, this red dress that she wore on the first day of school, the song she sang. Hmm. Maybe. Peter really has meant it the whole time. That's our review. And with that, we are going to go into our next chapter, chapter 23. Uh, we're going to be reading two more chapters this evening, 23, 24. Uh, and then, uh, y'all, this is the, the second to last stream of this book. Next time we come back, we are going to be reading chapters 25, 26, and 27, and that's it. And then we go into our next book. So get excited because this is our penultimate episode of this series, uh, of, of this book, I should specify. Um, let's see. Traumatized Mortal says, hey, when are you going to upload the podcast of Night School? Because I've just recently listened to that. Um, Night School is going to be uploaded uh, basically 24 hours before each episode. Uh, episode one is currently already up on Spotify, as it is also on YouTube. So if you want to find it there, uh, but if you want to find episode two, which we just streamed live yesterday, um, that's going to take quite a bit of editing. It was a, it, it, it got a little wonky on me in some spots, so I just, I'll, I'll need to edit it. Um, but uh, that expect that one to be, let's see, two Tuesday at noon Pacific time that will be available. Uh, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts, etc. Sir David Goodvibe says, it seems like he's trying to protect her weaknesses with all this. A sign of a beautiful, honest, caring character, but who knows? Indeed. Indeed. 
<laughs> Gwen Dog says, I guess it didn't occur to me that Haymitch or someone suggested this behavior. Yeah, it, it's it, it's something that, that uh, Peta and Haymitch sort of developed together, and then Katniss had to sort of catch on. Uh, Natalie says, absolutely. He cares deeply, but he's definitely going, uh, he's definitely doing it up to make sure she gets to the end. Yep, yeah, there's a practical side to this. And, you know, without going into it too much right now in between chapters, I'll, we'll save it for the end, um, there is definitely sort of, um, th this is analogous to some of the things that we see in real life right now. Not so much the, like, hey, kiss, 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 uh, and then, you know, and then you will be supported, but there is absolutely sort of a um, uh, a drive. Some of you who sort of keep an eye on uh, housing situations uh, and uh, the different benefits of being in a relationship. You, you, you I should say, different um, uh, contractual benefits of being in a relationship. Some of you may know it. It is hard once you are sort of in a relationship to support oneself uh, 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 on one's own. And so uh, some of these relationships, it's an interesting analogy between this and the way that life tends to work, um, wherein, you know, relationships, there are, there are many places where it, it's very hard to find a place to live without being in a relationship. You can, uh, you know, you can try to find roommates, etc. That's That can always be some kind of way, but um, there there is a lot in this book, as I'm sure we all know. Uh, with interesting analogies to the modern day. So, without further ado, Sanders says, with this chapter being like it is, I suspect we're going to be launched into a roller coaster of action. Well, Sander, buckle up and keep your hands and legs and arms and uh, any other various appendages inside the vehicle at all times. Chapter 23. Every cell in my body wants me to dig into the stew and cram it mouthful by mouthful, but Peter's voice stops me. We better take it slow on that stew. Remember, first night on the train. That rich food made me sick and I wasn't even starving then. You're right. I could just inhale this whole thing, I say regretfully, but I don't. We're quite sensible. We each have a roll, half an apple, an egg-sized serving of stew and rice. I make myself eat the stew in tiny spoonfuls. They even sent us silverware and plates, savoring each bite. When we finish, I stare longingly at the dish. <laughs> I want more. Me too. I tell you what, we wait an hour, and if it stays down, we get another serving, Peter says. Agreed. It's going to be a long hour. Maybe not that long. What was that that you were saying just before the food arrived? Something about me, no competition, best thing that ever happened to you? I don't remember that last part, I say, hoping it's too dim in here for the cameras to pick up my blush. Oh, that's right, that's right. No, that was, that's what I was thinking, he says. Scoot over, I'm freezing. 
I make room for him in the sleeping bag. We lean back against the cave wall, my head on his shoulder, his arms wrapped around me. I can feel Hamish nudging me to keep up the act. So, since we were five, you never even noticed any of the other girls? I asked him. No, I noticed just about every girl, but none of them made a lasting impression. Except you. I'm sure that would thrill your parents. You liking a girl from the seam? I say. Hardly, but I couldn't care less. Anyway, if we make it back, you're not going to be a girl from the seam. You'll be a girl from the Vector's Village. That's right. If we win, we'll each get a house in the part of town reserved for Hunger Games victors. Long ago, when the games began, the capital had built a dozen fine houses in each district. Of course, in ours, only one is occupied. Most of the others have never been lived in at all. A disturbing thought hits me. But then our only neighbor's going to be Hamish. Oh, that'll be nice, says Peter, tightening his arms around me. You and me and Hamish. Very cosy. Picnics, birthdays, long winter nights around the fire for telling old Hunger Games tales. I told you he hates me, I said, but I can't help laughing at the image of Hamish becoming my new pal. That's only sometimes, when he's sober. Never heard him say one negative thing about you, says Peter. But he's never sober, I protest. Oh, that's right. Who am I thinking of? Who am I? Oh, that I know. It's Sinner who likes you. But that's mainly because you didn't try to run away when you set you on fire, says Peter. On the other hand, Hamish. Well, if I were you, I'd avoid Hamish completely. He does hate you. I thought you said I was his favourite, I say. He hates me more. I don't think people in general are his sort of thing. I know the audience will enjoy our having fun at Haymitch's expense. He's been around so long, he's practically an old friend to some of them. And after his head dive off the stage at the reaping, everybody knows him. By this time, they'll have dragged him out of the control room for interviews about us, no telling what sort of lies he's made up. He's at something of a disadvantage, because most mentors have a partner, another victor to help them, whereas Haymitch has to be ready to go into action at any moment. Kind of like me when I was alone in the arena. I wonder how he's holding up. With the drinking, the attention, the stress of trying to keep us alive. It's funny. Hamish and I don't get along well in person, but maybe Peter is right about us being alike. Because he seems to be able to communicate with me by the timing of his gifts. Like how I knew I must be close to the water when he withheld it, and how I knew the sleep syrup wasn't just something to ease Peter's pain. And how I know now how I have to play up the romance. He hasn't made much of an effort to connect with Peter, really. Perhaps he thinks a bowl of broth would just be a bowl of broth to Peter, whereas I'll see the strings attached to it. A thought hits me, and I'm amazed that this question has taken so long to surface. Maybe it's because I've only recently begun to view Hamish with a degree of curiosity. How do you think that he did it? Who? Did what? Peter asks. Hamish. How do you think that he won the games? Peter considers this quite a while before he answers. Hamish is sturdily built, but no physical wonder like Cato or Thresh. He's not particularly handsome. 
not in the way that causes sponsors to rain gifts on you, and he's so surly, it's hard to imagine anyone teaming up with him. There's only one way Haymitch could have won, and Peter says it just as I'm reaching this conclusion myself. He outsmarted the others, says Peter. I nod and then let the conversation drop. But secretly, I'm wondering if Haymitch sobered up long enough to help Peter and me because he thought we might just have the wits to survive. Maybe he wasn't always a drunk. Maybe in the beginning he tried to help the tributes. But then it got unbearable. It must be hell to mentor two kids and then watch them die, year after year after year. I realize that if I get out of here, that will become my job. To mentor the girl from District 12. The idea is so repellent, I thrust it from my mind. About half an hour has passed before I decide I have to eat again. Peter's too hungry himself to put up an argument. While I'm dishing up two more small servings of lamb stew and rice, we hear the anthem begin to play. Peter presses his eyes against a crack in the rocks to watch the sky. There won't be anything to say tonight, I say, far more interested in the stew than the sky. Nothing's happened, or we would have heard the cannon. Countless, Peter says quietly. What? Should we split another roll, too? I ask. Katniss, he repeats, but I find myself wanting to ignore him. I'm going to split one, but I'll save the cheese for tomorrow, I say. I see Peter staring at me. What? Three, she's dead, says Peter. He can't be, I say. They must have fired the cannon during the thunder and we missed it. Are you sure? I mean, it's pouring buckets out there. I don't know how you can see anything, I say. I push him away from the rocks and squint out into the dark, rainy sky. For about ten seconds, I catch a distorted glimpse of Thresh's picture, and then he's gone. Just like that. I slump down against the rocks, momentarily forgetting about the task at hand. Thresh is dead. I should be happy, right? One less tribute to face, and a powerful one too, but I'm not happy. All I can think about is Thresh letting me go. Letting me run because of Rue, who died with that spear in her stomach. Are you alright? asks Peter. I give a non-committal shrug and cup my elbows in my hands, hugging them close to my body. I have to bury the real pain, because who's going to bet on a tribute who keeps sniveling over the deaths of her opponents? Rue was one thing. We were allies. She was so young. But no one's going to understand my sorrow at Thresh's murder. That word pulls me up short. Murder. Thankfully, I don't say it out loud. It's not going to win me any points in the arena. What I do say is... It's just... If we didn't win... I wanted Thresh to, because he let me go, and because of Rue. Yeah, I know, but this means that we're one step closer to District 12. He nudges a plate of food into my hands. Eat. It's still warm. 
I take a bite of the stew to show that I don't really care, but it's like glue in my mouth and takes a lot of effort to swallow. It also means that Kato's going to be back to haunting us. And he's got supplies again. He'll be wounded, I bet. What makes you see that? Because Thresh would never have gone down without a fight. He's so strong, I mean, he was. And they were in his territory. Good. The more wounded Kato is, the better. I wonder how Foxface is making out. She's fine, I say peevishly. I'm still angry she thought of hiding in the cornucopia, and I didn't. Probably be easier to catch Kato than her. Maybe they'll catch each other. We can just go home. But we better be extra careful about watches. I dozed off a few times. Me too, I admit. But not tonight. We finish our food in silence, and then Peter offers to take the first watch. I burrow down in the sleeping bag next to him, pulling my hood up over my face to hide it from the cameras. I just need a few moments of privacy where I can let my emotions cross my face without being seen. Under the hood, I silently say goodbye to Thresh and thank him for my life. I promise to remember him, and if I can, do something to help his family and Ruse if I win. And then I escape into sleep, comforted by a full belly and the steady warmth of Peta beside me. When Peter wakes me later, the first thing I register is the smell of goat cheese. He's holding out half a roll spread with the creamy white stuff and topped with apple slices. Don't be mad, he says. I had to eat again. Here's your half. Oh, good, I say, immediately taking a huge bite. The strong, fatty cheese tastes just like the kind Prim makes, and the apples are sweet and crunchy. Mm. You make a goat cheese and apple tart at the bakery. <laughs> I bet that's expensive. Too expensive for my family to eat. Unless it's gone very stale. Of course, practically everything that we eat has gone stale, says Peter, pulling up the sleeping bag around him. In less than a minute, he's snoring. Huh. I always assumed the shopkeepers lived a soft life. It's true, Peter has always had something to eat, but there's something kind of depressing about living your life on stale bread. The hard, dry loaves that no one else wanted. One thing about us, since I bring our food home on a daily basis, most of it's so fresh you have to make sure it's not going to make a run for it. Somewhere during my shift, the rain stops. Not gradually, but all at once. The downpour ends, and there's only the residual drippings of water from the branches. The rush from the now overflowing stream below us. A full, beautiful moon emerges, and even without the glasses I can see outside. I can't decide if the moon is real or merely a projection of the game makers. I know it was full shortly before I left home. Gail and I watched it rise as we hunted into late hours. How long have I been gone? I'm guessing it's been about two weeks in the arena, and there was that week of preparation in the capital. Maybe the moon has completed its cycle? For some reason, I badly want it to be my moon. The same one I see from the woods around District 12. That would give me something to cling to in the surreal world of the arena, where the authenticity of everything is to be doubted. Four of us left. 
For the first time, I allow myself to truly think about the possibility that I might make it home. To fame, to wealth, to my own house in the Victor's Village. <laughs> my mother and Prim would live there with me. No more fear of hunger. A new kind of freedom. But then... What? What would my life be like on a daily basis? Most of it has been consumed with the acquisition of food. Take that away, and I'm not really sure who I am. What my identity is. The idea scares me some. I think of Haymitch with all of his money. What did his life become? He lives alone. No wife or children. Most of his waking hours drunk. I don't want to end up like that. But you won't be alone, I whisper to myself. I have my mother and Prim. Well, for the time being. And then... I don't want to think about that. When Prim is grown up, my mother passed away. I know I'll never marry. Never risk bringing a child into the world. Because if there's one thing that being a victor doesn't guarantee, it's your children's safety. My kids' names will go right there into the reaping balls with everyone else. And I swear I'll never let that happen. The sun eventually rises, its light slipping through the cracks and illuminating Peter's face. Who will he transform into if we make it home? This perplexing, good-natured boy who can spin out lies so convincingly, the whole of Pan Am believes him to be hopelessly in love with me. And I'll admit it, there are moments when he makes me believe it myself. At least we'll be friends, I think. Nothing will change the fact we've saved each other's lives here. And beyond that, he will always be the boy with the bread. Good friends. Anything beyond that, though? And I feel Gale's gray eyes watching me. Watching Peta, all the way from District 12. Discomfort causes me to move. I scoot over and shake Peter's shoulder. His eyes open sleepily, and when they focus in on me, he pulls me down for a long kiss. We're wasting time, I say when I finally break away. I wouldn't call it wasted, he says, giving a big stretch as he stands up. So, do we hunt on an empty stomach? To give us an edge? <clears throat> no, not us. We stuff ourselves and give us plenty of staying power. All right, count me in, Peter says. But I can see he's surprised when I defied the rest of the stew and rice and hand a heaping plate to him. Uh, all of this. We're going to earn it back today, I say, and we both plow into our plates. Even cold, it's one of the best things I've ever tasted. I abandoned my fork and scraped up the last dabs of gravy with my finger. <laughs> I can feel Effie Trinket shuddering at my manners. Hey, Effie, what's this? Says Peter. He tosses his fork over his shoulder and literally licks the plate clean with his tongue, making loud, satisfied sounds. Then he blows a kiss out to her in general and calls, We miss you, Effie! I cover his hand with my mouth, but I'm laughing. Stop, 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 stop. Don't do that. Kato could be right outside our cave. He grabs my hand away. 
What do I care? I've got you to protect me now, says Peter, pulling me to him. Come on, I say in exasperation, extricating myself from his grasp, but not before he gets in another kiss. Once we're packed up and standing outside our cave, our mood shifts to serious. It's as though, for the last few days, sheltered by the rocks and the rain and Cato's preoccupation with Thresh, we were given a respite, a holiday of sorts. Now the day is sunny and warm, and we both sense that we're really back in the games. I hand Peter my knife, since whatever weapons he once had are now gone, and he slips it into his belt. My last seven arrows. Of the twelve, I sacrificed three in the explosion, two at the feast. They rattle a little too loosely in the quiver. I can't afford to lose any more. He's going to be hunting us now, says Peter. Cato's not one to wait for his prey to wander by. If he's wounded, I begin. It won't matter, Peter breaks in. If he can move, he's coming. With all the rain, the stream has overrun its banks by several feet on either side. We stop there to replenish our water. I check the snares I set days ago and come up empty. Not surprising with the weather. Besides, I haven't seen many animals or signs of them in this area. If we want food, we better head back up to my old hunting grounds. That's your call. Just tell me what you need me to do. Keep an eye out. Stay on the rocks as much as possible. No sense in leaving him tracks to follow. And listen for both of us. It's clear at this point that the explosion destroyed the hearing in my left ear for good. I'd walk in the water to cover our tracks completely, but I'm not sure Peter's leg could take the current. Although the drugs have erased the infection, he's still pretty weak. My forehead hurts along the knife cut, but after three days, the bleeding has stopped. I wear a bandage around my head, though, just in case the physical exertion should bring it back. As we head up alongside the stream, we pass the place where I found Peter, camouflaged in the weeds and the mud. One good thing, between the downpour and the flooded banks, all signs of his hiding place have been wiped out. That means, if need be, we can come back to our cave. Otherwise, I wouldn't risk it with Cato after us. The boulders diminish to rocks that eventually turn to pebbles, and then, to my relief, we're back on pine needles and the gentle incline of the forest floor. For the first time, I realize we have a problem. Navigating the rocky terrain with a bad leg... Well, you're naturally going to make some noise. But even on the smooth bed of needles, Peter is loud. And I mean loud, loud, as if he's stomping his feet or something. I turn and look at him. What? He asks. You've got to move more quietly. Forget about Cato. You're chasing off every rabbit in a ten-mile radius. Really? Sorry, I didn't know. So we start up again, and he's a tiny bit better, but even with only one working ear, he's making me jump. Can you take your boots off? I suggest. What? He asks in disbelief, as if I've just asked him to walk barefoot on hot coals or something. I have to remind myself he's not used to the woods, that it's the scary, forbidden place beyond the fences of District 12. I think of Gale, with his velvet tread. It's eerie how little sound he makes, even when the leaves have fallen and it's a challenge to move at all without chasing off the game. I feel certain he's laughing at me back home. Yes, I say patiently. I will too. That way we'll both move quieter. 
like I was making any noise. So we both strip off our boots and socks, and while there's some improvement, I could swear he's making an effort to snap every branch we encounter. Needless to say, although it takes several hours to reach my old camp with Rue, I've shot nothing. If the stream would settle down, fish might be an option, but the current is still too strong. As we stop to rest and drink water, I try to work out a solution. Ideally, I would dump Peter right now with some simple root-gathering chore and go hunt, but then he'd be left with only a knife to defend himself against Cato's spears and superior strength. So what I'd really like is to try and conceal him somewhere safe, and then go hunt and come back and collect him. But I've got a feeling his ego isn't going to be down for that suggestion. Okay, I, I went ahead and accidentally used some slang that's definitely not in the words here. <laughs> but I've got a feeling his ego isn't going to go for that suggestion. Cottonless, we've got to split up. I, I know that I'm chasing away the game. It's only because your legs hurt, I say generously, because really you can tell that's only a small part of the problem. I know. So why don't you go on? Show me some plants together, and that way we'll both be useful. Not if Kaido comes by and kills you. I try to say it in a nice way, but it still sounds like I think he's a weakling. Surprisingly, he just laughs. <laughs> Look, I can handle Kato. I fought him before, didn't I? Yeah, that turned out great. You ended up dying in a mud bank. That's what I want to say, but I can't. He did save my life by taking on Kato, after all. I try another tactic. What if you climbed up into a tree and acted like a lookout while I hunted? I say, trying to make it sound like very important work. Eh, what if you show me what's edible around here and go get us some meat? He says, mimicking my tone. Just don't go far, in case you need help. I sigh and show him some roots to dig. We do need food, no question. One apple, two rolls, a blob of cheese the size of a plum. It won't last long. I'll just go a short distance and hope Cato is a long way off. I teach him a bird whistle. Not a melody like Rue's, but a simple two-note whistle, which we can use to communicate to each other that we are all right. Fortunately, he's good at this. Leaving him with the pack, I head off. I feel like I'm 11 again, tethered not to the safety of the fence, but to PETA, allowing myself 20, maybe 30 yards of hunting space. Away from him, though, the woods come alive with animal smells. <clears throat> Away from him, though, the woods come alive with animal sounds. Reassured by his periodic whistles, I allow myself to drift further away, and soon I've got two rabbits and a fat squirrel to show for it. I decide it's enough. I can set snares and maybe get some fish. With Peter's roots, this will be enough for now. As I travel the short distance back, I realize we haven't exchanged signals in a while. When my whistle receives no response, I run. In no time, I find the pack, a neat pile of roots beside it. The sheet of plastic has been laid on the ground where the sun can reach the single layer of berries that covers it. But where is he? Peter? I call out in a panic. Peter! I turn through the rustle of the underbrush and almost send an arrow through him. Fortunately, I pull my bow at the last second and it sticks in an oak trunk to his left. He jumps back, flinging a handful of berries into the foliage. 
My fear comes out as anger. What are you doing? You're supposed to be here, not running around in the woods. I found some bodies down by the stream, he says, clearly confused by my outburst. I whistled. Why didn't you whistle back? I snap at him. I didn't hear it. The water's too loud, I guess, he says. He crosses and puts his hands on my shoulders. That's when I feel that I'm trembling. I thought Kato killed you! I almost shout. No, I'm fine. Peter wraps his arms around me, but I don't respond. Katniss. I push away, trying to sort out my feelings. If two people agree on a signal, they stay in range. Because if one of them doesn't answer, they're in trouble, alright? Alright, he says. Alright, because that's what happened to Rue. And I watched her die, I say. I turn away from him. Go to the pack and open a fresh bottle of water. Although I still have some in mind. But I'm not ready to forgive him. I notice the food. The rolls and apples are untouched, but someone's definitely picked away part of the cheese. And you ate without me. I really don't care. I just want something else to be mad about right now. What? No, I didn't, Peter says. Oh, and I suppose the apples ate the cheese, I say. I don't know what ate the cheese, Peter says slowly and distinctly, as if trying not to lose his temper. But that wasn't me. I've been down by the stream collecting bodies. Would you care for some? I would, actually, but I don't want to relent too soon. I do walk over and look at them. I've never seen this type before. Mm, no, I have. But not in the arena. These aren't ruse berries, although they resemble them. Nor do they match any that I learned about in training. I lean down and scoop up a few, rolling in between my fingers. My father's voice comes back to me. Not these, Katniss. Never these. They're nightlock. They'll be dead before they reach your stomach. Just then, the cannon fires. I whip around, expecting Peter to collapse to the ground, but he only raises his eyebrows. The hovercraft appears a hundred yards or so away. What's left of Foxface's emaciated body is lifted into the air. I can see the red glint of her hair in the sunlight. I should have known the moment I saw the missing cheese. Peter has me by the arm, pushing me toward a tree. Claim, he's going to be here in a second. We'll stand a better chance fighting him from above. I stop him, suddenly calm. No, no, Peter. She's your kill, not Kato's. What? I've not, I've not even seen her since the first day. How could I have killed her? In answer... I hold out the berries. Traumatized model, that is a good reminder. We do have, we do have a catchphrase for the punk ruffians. Chew the boot. Munch, 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 munch. Chew the boot, baby. There we go. 
<laughs> and I'm going to leave it up to chat to explain that one should anyone be totally baffled by it. But um, Dahlia says, I wish I could be there. I'm going to be at a doctor's appointment for a while, but uh, I'll catch the VOD as usual. Maybe one of these days I'll have time to join the streams again. Dahlia, quite all right. We miss you, certainly, but I hope you're having a fantastic day. I uh, hope the doctor's appointment is, uh, you know, I, I rarely know of doctor's appointments that are like, oh, yeah, absolutely delightful. But I hope it's, frankly, I hope it's boring. That is that is my that is my typical hope for doctor's appointments. I hope it's just I hope it's just boring. Uh, Noxora says, "Gonna duck out now. Have a great stream, everyone. We'll make sure I'm here at the right time next week." Hey, Noxora, thanks for stopping in. Have a good one. Uh, let's see. Good night, Army Freedom. Have a nice evening. Sloth Creature says, "Missed a few chapters. Just join now." Yes, you've missed two chapters from today's stream. Um, I am about to go into my five-minute break. I'm going to take five minutes, and then I'll be back. You'll see the timer up here on screen if you're listening on Twitch. Um, Army Freedom says, I'm back, can't sleep. What's your favorite book? Uh, if you're asking me, Army Freedom, I would say, I mean, favorite book? I, I really loved Dune, um, and uh, uh, I, I mean, probably Swiss Family Robinson, honestly. It's been a little while since I read it last, but I... I don't know. I here's one thing that makes me not great at at this. You know, at, at least as the archetype of this, there's this sense of like, you know, when you when you want to dive into literature a bit better, you want to be revisiting stuff, right? You want to you want to read stuff, sure, but you want to reread stuff because you might find things that you missed before. It's hard for me to I, I don't often love to like reread stuff because I really enjoy getting as immersed as possible in the story. If I can just binge read, I, I have a much higher chance of, of really enjoying a story. Um, just really diving in and and uh, you know just getting just 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 get lost in it. Um, but uh, I enjoyed doing quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> Nat says Pride and Prejudice. I I Pride and Prejudice some of the best like clapbacks. I've ever heard in my life in Pride and Prejudice. Absolutely adore it. Um, can't call it my favorite book, but I the dialogue in it is just so good. <laughs> it makes me, it cracks me up for real. Um, okay, Sir David Goodvibe says, "Holy crap, I love this author." Who are we talking about here? Are we talking about uh, Are we talking about the author of of Hunger Games? <laughs> Nat Gray says, "It's as close to the perfect book as I think you can get." I gotcha. I gotcha. It's it's really very good. Yeah, she was just she was just a fantastic writer of dialogue. Um, Gwen Dog says I'm gonna have to read that. I've heard you mention the dialogue before. Yes, some of my favorite like zingiest dialogue uh, of of I think one probably any of the books I've read. Um, just like cracks me up. Like oof oof going in. <laughs> uh, Traumatized Mortal says yes. Uh, uh, but yes, this author is good. You have to read her other series, Gregor. The Overlander. Ooh, Gregor the Overlander. I don't think I've even heard of that one. Um, Army Freedom says maybe do next. I haven't heard uh, anything but good things from Matt Colville. It's, I mean, it's a good book. It's a really good book. Um, I, I enjoy sci-fi quite a bit, but there's so much like, um, there are so many trappings of of uh, of sci-fi. Uh, one of which is anytime a female character comes up, you have to listen to how attractive the author thinks they are. Um, Dune pretty well avoided that. I we we got great and even-handed descriptions of all the characters, and the characters were fascinating. Um, so I'm I'm thankful for that. It was one of the first times I read sci-fi and went, "Hey, 
I have not gotten bumped by this very annoying thing that's in a lot of sci-fi. Very thankful. Okay, uh, gang, I am going to take my five. I'll be back in five minutes. We're going to read one more chapter this evening, chapter 24. And then, as I said, chapter 24, and then next week, I should say the next time I stream, the end of book one. I hope y'all are excited. I will see you in five. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. My name is Sam, and this is Sidecar Stories, and this is Thursday, which means Flying Sidecar, a voice actor's venture through some stories we all love. Right now, The Hunger Games. Right now, right now, Chapter 24. This is the last uh, chapter of this evening, um, and the last chapter of today's episode. Today's episode is the second to last episode of this book, which means that the next time we come back to stream this... We're going to be reading the end of this book, the final three chapters. Um, both of them a little over 11,000 words, so not crazy long this week and next week. Um, but, uh, <laughs> y'all, we have run through this one pretty quickly. I am really hoping that the next book is as stream-friendly as this one was, just divided up really, really neatly um, into nine really equal episodes. It's been just... Mm. Looking at my organizational spreadsheet over here, just adoring it. Sir David Goodvibe says, This music reminds me of Sims, and I'm a little confused by that. I did not know Sims went in so hard. I assumed all of their music was a little bit like... I've never really played it for an extended period of time. Uh, very briefly, back in, like, grade school. Uh, back when I was homeschooled. Um, uh, but reminds you of The Sims. In my head, it was all sort of like... Um, uh, like Nintendo music, just didn't didn't lean in too hard. But hey, who knows? <laughs> and you've done an excellent job, Sir David Good Vibes. Uh, I believe you were getting goofed on. <laughs> uh, Army Freedom says, "Is the Dune movie any good?" Well, uh, a great question, Army Freedom. Um, I have been like. Uh, I, I've been, I really wanted to watch it in IMAX, didn't get a chance to do so, and so I got angsty and just didn't watch it in theaters. Frankly, it's been like four years since I watched a movie in theaters. I would say over the last four years, I've probably watched maybe, maybe one or two movies in theaters. I just stopped being interested in a lot of stuff that was showing, um, and, uh, you know, I think one of those two, maybe three, I guess, in the past four years was, um, a Marvel movie, just because that's how I sort of, like, keep up with, um... Uh, my brother, he and I like to watch the Marvel movies together. But yeah, it's I don't know, it's 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 odd. I Dune was one of the first ones I've really wanted to watch. Um, but uh, no, have not seen it yet. Hey, a, a friend uh, lives with a roommate who um, is going to be well has just finished building a, a home theater, and so I might watch it there. We shall see. Um, but I've read only the core Dune book, only the one book, and uh, very excited. Very excited to see the movie because it looks really, really good. It looks good. Hard to tell, but it looks great. Traumatized Modal says, um, uh, in real life, I'm 16. And the worst thing I say is, <laughs> I gotcha. Mainly due to my parents uh, telling kids who swear don't have a large enough vocabulary to, <laughs> to I believe S-U-I-T is the one you were looking for, but it's very, very funny that you've written to saute their needs and it makes them sound dumb. 
uh, <laughs> traumatized mortal. Um, I like that. I really like that, and I'm I'm going to use that at some point. All right, gang, are you ready for our next chapter? Well, if you're not, buckle up because it's time. I'm pumping the gas. Uh, chapters 22 and 23. A quick spot of review. Um, basically, pretty quiet times with Katniss and Peta. Katniss um, has sort of gotten uh, gotten Peta healthy again, and now Peta is helping Katniss to get healthy after her ordeal, trying to get the medicine for him. Um, they are doing a pretty good job taking care of one another and doing a pretty good job of maintaining this ruse that we're not now so sure is a ruse um, uh, of being just deeply in love with one another. The star-crossed lovers from District 12. Um, well, let's see if they can keep it up for longer. Uh, Thresh is dead. Thresh, apparently, um, probably killed by Kato, as far as we can tell. The, they, they were sort of the closest together, the last that we knew. Um, and then, toward the end of this chapter, uh, right here at the end, as a matter of fact, as Katniss is trying to hunt in spite of Peta's sort of wounded leg and inexperience, causing him to really scare off most of the game, he gathers some berries, and we find that they there's a little fox that's been stealing from them. Foxface dies because Peta accidentally collects some very poisonous berries. Um, it says as uh, she was taken away that her body was emaciated. Uh, that means sort of very, very skinny from malnutrition, um, from being underfed, and it seems that uh, the situation is she had been kind of following Katniss and Peta. Uh, because they make a decent bit of noise, not sneaking around, and Foxface is very sneaky, um, and stealing a little bit of their food in an in in attempt to survive. But Peta accidentally gathered some poisonous berries, and now there are three. Thresh is dead, Foxface is dead. It is just Katniss, Peta, and Kato. Are you all ready for our next chapter? I hope so. Here we go. Chapter 24 It takes a while to explain the situation to Peta. How Foxface stole the food from the supply pile before I blew it up. How she tried to take enough to survive, but not enough that anyone would notice. How she wouldn't question the safety of berries we were preparing to eat ourselves. I wonder how she found us. My fault, I guess, if I'm as loud as you say. We were about as hard to follow as a herd of cattle, but I tried to be kind. And she's very clever, Peter. Well, she was. Till you outfoxed her. Not on purpose. It doesn't seem fair somehow. I mean, we would both have been dead too if she hadn't eaten the berries first. He checks himself. No. No, we wouldn't. You recognised them, didn't you? I give a nod. We call him Nightlock. Even the name sounds deadly. 
I'm sorry, Katniss. I really thought that they were the same ones that you gathered. Don't apologise. It just means that we're one step closer to home. Right? I ask. I'll get rid of the rest, Peter says. He gathers up the sheet of blue plastic, careful to trap the berries inside, and goes to toss them into the woods. Wait! I cry. I find the leather pouch that belonged to the boy from District 1 and fill it with a few handfuls of berries from the plastic. If they fooled Foxface, maybe they can fool Kato as well. If he's chasing us or something, we can act like we accidentally dropped the pouch, and if he eats them... Hello, District 12, says Peter. That's it, I say, securing the pouch to my belt. He's going to know where we are by now, says Peter. If he was anywhere nearby and saw that hovercraft, he's going to know that we killed her. And he's going to come after us. Peter's right. This could be just the opportunity Kato's been waiting for. But even if we run now, there's the meat to cook and our fire will be another sign of our whereabouts. Let's make a fire. Right now. I begin to gather branches and brush. Are you ready to face him? Peter asks. I'm ready to eat. Better to cook our food while we have the chance. But he also knows there's two of us and probably assumes that we're hunting Foxface. That means you're recovered. And the fire means that we're not hiding. We're inviting him here. Would you show up? Maybe not, he says. Peter's a whiz with fires, coaxing a blaze out of the damp wood. In no time I have the rabbits and squirrel roasting, the roots wrapped in leaves baking in the coals. We take turns gathering greens and keeping a careful watch for Cato, but as I anticipated, he doesn't make an appearance. When the food's cooked, I pack up most of it, leaving us each a rabbit's leg to eat as we walk. I want to move higher into the woods, climb a good tree and make camp for the night, but Peter resists. I can't climb like you, Katniss. Especially with my leg, and I don't think I could ever fall asleep fifty feet above the ground. It's not safe to stay in the open, Peter, I say. Well, can't we go back to the cave? he asks. It's near water, easy to defend. I sigh. Several more hours of walking, or should I say crashing, through the woods to reach an area we'll just have to leave in the morning to hunt. But Peter doesn't ask for much. He's followed my instructions all day, and I'm sure if things were reversed, he wouldn't make me spend the night in a tree. It dawns on me that I haven't been very nice to Peter today. Nagging him about how loud he was, screaming at him over disappearing. The playful romance we had sustained in our cave has disappeared out in the open. Under the hot sun, with the threat of Cato looming over us. Hey, Mitch has probably just about had it with me. And as for the audience... I reach up and give him a kiss. Sure. Let's go back to the cave. He looks pleased and relieved. Well, that was easy. <laughs> I work my arrow out of the oak, careful not to damage the shaft. These arrows are food, safety, and life itself now. We toss a bunch more wood on the fire. It should be sending off smoke for a few more hours, although I doubt Cato assumes anything at this point. When we reach the stream, I see the water has dropped considerably and moves at its old leisurely pace, so I suggest we walk back in it. Pete is happy to oblige, and since he's a lot quieter in water than on land, it's a doubly good idea. It's a long walk back to the cave, though, even going downward, even with the rabbit to give us a boost. 
We were both exhausted by our hike today and still way too underfed. I keep my bow loaded, both for Cato and for any fish that I see, but the stream seems strangely empty of creatures. By the time we reach our destination, our feet are dragging and the sun sits low on the horizon. We fill up our water bottles and climb the little slope to our den. It's not much, but out here in the wilderness, it's the closest thing we have to a home. It'll be warmer than a tree, too, because it provides some shelter from the wind that has already begun to blow steadily in from the west. I set a good dinner out, but halfway through, Peta begins to nod off. After days of inactivity, the hunt has taken its toll. I order him into the sleeping bag and set aside the rest of his food for when he wakes. He drops off immediately. I pull the sleeping bag up to his chin and kiss his forehead. Not for the audience, but for me. Because I'm so grateful that he's still here. Not dead by the stream, as I'd thought. So glad that I don't have to face Cato alone. Brutal, bloody Cato, who can snap a neck with a twist of his arm, who had the power to overcome Thresh, who's had it out for me since the beginning. He probably has a special hatred for me ever since I outscored him in training. A boy like Peta would simply shrug that off, but I've got a feeling it drove Cato to distraction. Which is not that hard. I think of his ridiculous reaction to finding the supplies blown up. The others were upset, of course, but he was completely unhinged. I wonder now if Cato might not be entirely sane. The sky lights up with a seal, and I watch Foxface shine in the sky and then disappear from the world forever. He hasn't said it, but I don't think Peta felt good about killing her, even if it was essential. I can't pretend I'll miss her, but I have to admire her. My guess is, had they given us some sort of test, she would have been the smartest out of all the tributes. If, in fact, we had been setting a trap for her, I bet she'd have sensed it and avoided the berries. It was Peta's own ignorance that brought her down. I've spent so much time making sure I don't underestimate my opponents, I've forgotten it's just as dangerous to overestimate them as well. That brings me back to Cato. But while I think I had a sense of Foxface, who she was and how she operated, he's a little bit more slippery. Powerful, well-trained, but smart? I don't know, not like she was, and utterly lacking in control. I believe Kato could easily luge, luge, he could easily hock a loogie. Not like he, oh, good grief. Let me just keep rewinding. Let's, just, let's start the stream over. I don't know. Not like she was. And utterly lacking in the control Foxface demonstrated. I believe Kato could easily lose his judgment in a fit of temper. Not that I feel superior on that point. I think of the moment I sent the arrow flying into the apple in the pig's mouth when I got so enraged. Maybe I do understand Cato better than I think. Despite the fatigue in my body, my mind's alert, so I let Peta sleep long past our usual switch. In fact, a soft gray day has begun when I shake his shoulder. He looks out, almost in alarm. I, s I slept the whole night. It's not fair, Katniss. You should have woken me. I stretch and burrow down into the bag. I'll sleep now. Wake me up if anything interesting happens. 
Apparently nothing does, because when I open my eyes, bright, hot afternoon light gleams through the rocks. Any sign of our friend? I ask. Peter shakes his head. No, he's keeping a low profile. Disturbingly low. How long do you think we'll have before the game makers drive us together? I ask. Well, Foxface died almost a day ago, so there's been plenty of time for the audience to place bets and to get bored. I guess it could happen at any moment, says Peter. Yeah, I've got a feeling today's the day, I say. I sit up and look out at the peaceful terrain. I wonder how they'll do it. Peter remains silent. There's not really any good answer. Well, until they do, no sense in wasting a hunting day. But we should probably eat as much as we can, just in case we run into trouble. Peter packs up our gear while I lay out a big meal. The rest of the rabbits, roots, greens, and rolls spread with the last bit of cheese. The only thing I leave in reserve is the squirrel and the apple. By the time we're done, all that's left is a pile of rabbit bones. My hands are greasy, which only adds to my growing feeling of grubbiness. Maybe we don't bathe daily in the seam, but we keep cleaner than I have of late. Except for my feet, which have walked in the stream. I'm covered in a layer of grime. Leaving the cave has a sense of finality about it. I don't think there will be another night in the arena somehow. One way or another, dead or alive, I have the feeling I'll escape it today. I give the rocks a pat goodbye and we head down to the stream to wash up. I can feel my skin itching for the cool water. I may do my hair and braid it back wet. I'm wondering if we might have enough to give our clothes a quick scrub when we reach the stream. Or what used to be the stream. Now there's only a bone-dry bed. I put my hand down to feel it. Not even a little damp. We must have drained it while we slept, I say. A fear of the cracked tongue, aching body, and fuzzy mind brought on by my previous dehydration creeps back into my consciousness. Our bottles and skin are fairly full, but with two drinking and this hot sun, it won't take long to deplete them. The lake, says Peter. That's where they'll want us to go. Maybe the ponds still have some water, I say hopefully. We can check, he says, but he's just humoring me. I'm humoring myself because I know what I'll find when we return to the pond where I soaked my leg. A dusty, gaping mouth of a hole. But we make the trip anyway just to confirm what we already know. You're right. They're driving us to the lake, I say. Where there's no cover. Where they're guaranteed a bloody fight to the death with nothing to block their view. Do you want to go straight away, or wait until the water's tapped out? Let's go now, while we've had some food and some rest. Let's just go end this thing. I nod. It's funny, I feel almost as if it's the first day of the games again. I'm in the same position. Twenty-one tributes are dead, but I still have yet to kill Cato. And really, wasn't he always the one to kill? Now it seems the other tributes were just minor obstacles, distractions, keeping us from the real battle of the games. Cato and me. 
But no, there's the boy walking beside me. I feel his arms wrap around me. Two against one. There should be a piece of cake, he says. Next time we eat, it'll be in the capital, I answer. You bet it will, he says. We stand there a while, locked in an embrace, feeling each other, the sunlight, the rustle of the leaves at our feet. Then without a word, we break apart and head for the lake. I don't care now that Peter's footfalls send rodents scurrying, make birds take wing. We have to fight Cato, and I'd just as soon do it here as in the plain. But I doubt I'll have that choice. If the game makers want us in the open, then in the open we will be. We stop to rest for a few moments under the tree where the careers trapped me. The husk of the tracker-jacker nest, beaten to a pulp by the heavy rains and dried in the burning sun, confirms the location. I touch it with the tip of my boot and it dissolves into dust, quickly carried off by the breeze. I can't help looking up into the tree where Rue secretly perched, waiting to save my life. Tracker jackers. Glimmer's bloated body. The terrifying hallucinations. Let's move on, I say, wanting to escape the darkness that surrounds this place. Peter doesn't object. Given our late start to the day, when we reach the plain, it's nearly early evening. There's no sign of Cato. No sign of anything except the gold cornucopia glowing in the slanting sun rays. Just in case Cato decided to pull a fox face on us, we circle the cornucopia to make sure it's empty. Then, obediently, as if following instructions, we cross to the lake and fill our water containers. I frown at the shrinking sun. I don't want to fight him after dark. There's only the one pair of glasses. Peter carefully squeezes drops of iodine into the water. Maybe that's what he's waiting for. What do you want to do? Go back to the cave? Either that or find a tree. But let's give him another half an hour or so. Then we'll take over, I answer. We sit by the lake in full sight. There's no point in hiding now. In the trees at the edge of the plain, I can see the mocking jays flitting about, bouncing melodies back and forth between them like brightly colored balls. I open my mouth and sing out Rue's four-note run. I can feel them pause curiously at the sound of my voice, listening for more. I repeat the notes in the silence. First one mocking jay trills the tune back, then another, and the whole world comes alive with the sound. Just like your father, says Peter. My fingers find the pin on my shirt. That's Rue's song. I think they remember it. The music swells and I recognize the brilliance of it. As the notes overlap, they complement one another, forming a lovely, unearthly melody. It was this sound, then, thanks to Rue, that sent the orchard workers of District 11 home each night. Does someone start it at quitting time, I wonder? now that she's dead. For a while, I just close my eyes and listen, mesmerized by the beauty of the song. Then something begins to disrupt the music. Runs cut off in jagged, imperfect lines. Dissonant notes intersperse with the melody. The Mockingjay's voices rise up among a shrieking cry of alarm. 
were on our feet. Peta wielding the knife, me poised to shoot when Cato smashes through the trees and bears down on us. He has no spear. In fact, his hands are empty, yet he runs straight for us. My first arrow hits his chest and inexplicably falls aside. He's got some kind of body armor, I shout to Peta. Just in time, too, because Cato is upon us. I brace myself, but he rockets right between us, with no attempt to check his speed. I can tell from his panting, the sweat pouring off his purplish face, that he's been running hard for a long time. Not toward us. From something. But what? My eyes scan the woods just in time to see the first creature leap into the plane. As I'm turning away, I see another half-dozen join it. Then I'm stumbling blindly after Cato with no thought of anything but to save myself. Creatures in the arena. We've talked about the spoiler game, excuse me, the, the cliffhanger game of this book, and certainly, what else could we expect going into the final episode of this book? Neen says, ugh, what a place to end. Yeah! <laughs> Missy just says, oh, jeez. Oh, man. Yes, indeed, folks. How else could it be? That's the question. Sushi says, I'm at work right now, so I can't be active. Quite all right, Sushi. Still good to have you here. Um, everyone. Everyone. <sighs> good luck this week. That's all I can say. Now, we have got one more episode of this one, and then we're going to be launching into, of course, the next book in this series. Um, I didn't have a chance to answer it, but I saw before someone was asking the question, when the vote comes up for what new series we're going to be reading, where does that happen? Well, an excellent question. That happens in Discord. Um, we have got a Sidecar Stories Discord um, with, uh, that's where we do all of our midweek discussion. If you want to find that, as a matter of fact, if you want to find that, if you want to find other links, and if you want to find the perfect way to share about the show, Go ahead and use the link that has just popped up in chat. You can summon it at any time using the links command. But of course, linktree slash sidecar stories, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash sidecar stories. That is the link to follow. Follow it onto the Discord, wherever else it takes you. And that is the link to share. So there's the answer to that question. Uh, we set up uh, individual channels. I make sure to ping people uh, when we're having those votes, but those happen over in Discord. Now, let's talk about our chapter for the day, shall we? Um, we have a, we have, um, a, uh, a short, it's on the shorter end, uh, a short little soundbite to read this week um, uh, after the stream tonight. But first, we are going to talk about the chapter. Does anyone have anything that they would like to discuss? Oftentimes, I'm sort of, you know, in, in the leadership position of this, but I'm certainly curious, what are y'all thinking about? What are the moments where you find yourself uh, confused or excited or you notice a secret? Um, do try to keep this spoiler free, of course, but um, what things are the most exciting or uh, most curious to you as we proceed in? We've talked in previous books about how Frankly, this point in a book, this, this, this moment, is a time when we often find many more questions than we have answers. Because we're, you know, kind of the, the, the flow of 
a story really is a setup and a payoff, right? Um, it, it, it is, it works in much the same way as a joke. Um, you, you set something up and then you pay it off. Um, you try to do it unexpectedly, but you can't do it so unexpectedly that it is just sort of non sequitur. You can't do it where it just feels like, oh yeah, that's random. Okay. Thumbs up, I guess. And so the, 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 aptitude of an author to set up and pay off in satisfying ways that is one of the big things that sort of marks great authors but right now this moment in a story this moment right before the payoff this is when we have the fewest answers because we're about to get a lot of them at once you know the the questions of stakes who's going to win how are they going to win uh what is it going to cost the winner um uh when the winner goes back home what is life going to be like for them all of these questions of about the stakes, S-T-A-K-E-S, for those of you who are unsure, um, the stakes, basically, um, like, what is at risk here? Um, then, of course, there are additional questions, like, is PETA really as enamored of uh, Katniss as he seems, right? Is, there, is it really true that he really has, all this time, loved Katniss from afar, or at least, you know, sort of uh, adored her from afar? Um, these are some of the questions that we can ask right now, and we're going to probably get answers pretty soon, but right now what we can do is simply ask. Traumatized Mortal says, this author has this thing that she does around the end of the last book. Does anybody else know what it is? Both of her series. Um, interesting. I don't know what it is because I don't know. Like, obviously, I know some of the things that happened. I have read this entire series before, but having not read the other series... Um, I do not know, Traumatized Mortal. Interesting. I appreciate you sort of keeping it veiled. And over in Discord, we do actually have a spoilers channel. Um, we have a, a channel dedicated to spoilers where uh, y'all can like feel free to discuss certain things with impunity. Um, let's see. Uh, Sir David Good Vibes says, I'm at work and this is cutting out. Thanks for the stream. I'll catch up next week. Hey, David. Sir David, excuse me. Sir David Good Vibes wouldn't wouldn't think of uh, denying you your title. Um, you are a knight after all. Great to have you here. Thanks for ducking in. Um, Nat Grace says Katniss's identity struggle is fascinating to me. I like that, Natalie. That's a great question. Um, this question of identity, right? We talked about um, uh, the, the 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 moments after, right? Katniss and Peter are discussing what happens when the games are over, assuming that they win. They go home, they get these little homes in, uh, they get these houses in the, the, the oh, what do they call it, the victory, uh, the victor's circle? Crap, I don't remember what it's called. Um, somebody help me out here. What is it called? What do they call it? Um, the, the victor's neighborhood, though. Uh, this collection of about a dozen houses, only one of which is currently occupied. It's, it's occupied by, by um, uh, Haymitch. But what is life going to be? for Katniss. She lives in this little house with Prim and her mother and does what? Victor's Village. Thank you, Traumatized Mortal. I appreciate you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Living in Victor's Village, what, what will Katniss do? And with this same thought of what will I do, Katniss considers at the same time, who will I be? An interesting little question. I'm, I'm sure some of you all have seen kind of that that meme that's gone around uh, in certain circles for a while. You know the the question of let's see, it's always it's always a crap show trying to relate sort of memes by explanation, but uh, basically a conversation between two people. Uh, person A asks, uh, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And uh, person B responds, 
Uh, I want to be a kind, thoughtful, considerate person. Um, and person A responds, no, sorry, I mean, how do you want to sell your labor? There's that question, right? How can Katniss define herself outside of what she does when what she does occupies so much of her life that she has not been allowed to find an identity outside of it? This is a question which I, I think sort of plagues the system that we live in. Um, when one's life is so entirely dependent on the work that it puts out in exchange for the survival that it purchases, when a person's life is so dedicated to work that they don't develop any, that they don't have an opportunity to develop any identity outside of that, then what is their identity other than the work that they do? Katniss feels this in this contrived scarcity of, uh, you know, uh, people not not having enough food, which I'm going to put in quotes because it's simply not true. There is enough food; it just doesn't get sent to them. Um, in this in this circumstance, where this contrived scarcity forces Katniss to make her entire life about the day to day process of simply having enough to survive, she hasn't had the opportunity to gain much more of an identity. At least not one that she identifies for herself. You know, there are, we've we've talked in previous books about um, uh, people's prime aspects, those things which, if they were to assess themselves, they would consider this to be sort of the most important or at the very least most significant thing about themselves. And for Katniss, of course, this is her hunting. Who knows what words she would apply to it, what title she would give it, but the most important thing about Katniss, if you ask Katniss, is I, I hunt and I help my family survive. There are other things, such as her sort of mistrustfulness, her um, uh, some of her challenges in terms of sort of like assessing who is a friend versus who is a, uh, a, a colleague or an opportunity. These are all questions that really kind of relate back to her prime aspect because she has not had the opportunity, as so few have, it seems, in this world, um, to develop an identity outside of that. An interesting question, the question of Katniss's identity. I like that, Natalie. Thank you very much. Um, Gwendog says, when did the torches in the library start moving? Um, it was like, I think it was like early on in, um, uh, let's see, early on in the Percy Jackson series, I want to say, or maybe like midway through, but it actually, uh, on the end screen, I'm going to flash it up just for a moment here. Uh, it's on, it, there's a, a a candle that hangs out right about here, if I remember correctly, uh, that is also moving now. Let's take a look. Oh, would you look at that? Ooh, it all moves around. <laughs> Just a little bit of a, I don't know, production value. I don't know. I, I'm I'm not great at Twitch. I just enjoy it. Um, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Um, Orly Rose says, I read Divergent and voted for that to be a contender, but I'm loving this series and the pace of the writing. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I've really enjoyed uh, the themes that we get to explore in this one and, um, and, and the pace, frankly. Um, and it doesn't shy away from some of these tougher issues. Um, <laughs> Nat says, oh, I was disappointed. I wanted it to be so good, but it just wasn't. Mortal says, I haven't actually finished Divergent yet. Uh, I started the first book, but have not finished it. Um, but yeah, continuing our discussion about who is Katniss, what is her identity? Um, 
Nat Grace says she's a provider and she is struggling with what she is if she can't provide for the way, uh, if she can no longer do, oh boy, hold on, sorry, I got lost. This is what I do, I just try to like charge on through and get the sentence mostly right, but I, I always cause myself some trouble. She's a provider and she's struggling with what she is if she can no longer do that the way that she always has. Um, yeah, precisely, Nat Grace. Um, I, gotta, I gotta call you Natalie. When I see you in chat here, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm used to seeing your name just as Natalie spelled out, and your little profile picture and everything over from Discord. Um, but uh, no, absolutely, yeah, her her ability to provide is the only identity that she has ever had for herself, and she's good at it. It's not that this is a bad identity, but she simply never had the opportunity to explore any others, never had the opportunity to to try on an identity um, other than the the one that is enforced on her or the one that is demanded of her as a provider for her family. Um, Gwen says, I'll tell you about an existential slash identity I had back um, in my early 20s. I'm a photographer and found that there was a girl with my same name who was also a photographer in California. Bugged me out. <laughs> identity freak out. Yeah, so, um, yeah, there's, there's like a, a certain sense of like, A, what am I if I can't do this thing? But also, what am I if someone else is exactly the same thing? Yeah, these little identity questions. They pop up all over the place, and once again, this is, I think, a mark of some good literature. It's making us think about this stuff, not just, oh, who's going to get stabbed next? Oh, somebody's going to get stabbed. And, of course, Courier 6 uh, pops in, as usual, with some, some insight. Let's see what Courier 6 has to say. Courier 6, our uh, Discord novelist, um, and uh, I'm, I am going to continue to rib you about it, Courier 6, but I am never disappointed because uh, I always like to see the things that you have to say. Courier 6 says, well, I'm jumping in right before the end here, but I have read this before. Uh, I, I, I'm going to uh, end quote for a moment. I'm going to stop this if it seems like we're getting into spoiler territory. All right. Requote. I really appreciate how willing to believe in the reality of her world Suzanne Collins seems to be. Now, she absolutely does not waste time with convincing her characters or the audience that what is happening is real and here's why. It's happening get into the sidecar, inhabit the world. Yes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna end the quote for a moment here because uh, yeah, I've, I've talked about how important that is. When we talk about a story like this, when we talk about a, a story, especially of rebellion against the status quo, it simply doesn't ring true to have, uh, to, to catch up with the characters when they've already decided that the status quo is, is nothing because it doesn't show the fight that it takes on the inside to make that happen. I think a lot of these stories sort of, they they look at the, um, we've talked about big fight, small fight before. This isn't so much about that, but the external fight versus the internal fight. There's the external fight, right? The 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 things that you do to sort of like undermine uh, um, uh, structures of power that don't deserve to exist. Um, there are things that you do to sort of like help yourself survive. There are things that you do on the outside that say, yeah, I'm, I'm rebelling against this status quo. I'm rebelling against this system that is obviously exploitational and wrong. But there is a fight that has to happen on the inside first where you realize that that is wrong and that you uh, and then there's a whole there's a whole other step uh, on on the inside of realizing it's wrong, and then subsequently being willing to take action against it. There's an internal fight that must happen first, and if we don't follow the characters through that, it's almost like well they were never really bought in in the first place. We we don't see 
part of the enormously important part of that fight, which is the internal fight of a realizing this world that I that I that I live in, or this more specifically, this set of values that I've sort of grown up with, is clearly flawed. This is one of the things that I realized as I stopped being religious. Um, this this set of values that I came that I that I had understood for such a long time to be the right set of values to live by. There there are f so many flaws in it. Um, and that is a mental battle all of its own, and it's someone that e it's a battle that each person has to fight if they're ever going to get to the external fight of okay, so now I'm going to actually take action to try and um, uh, undermine or reform or whatever verb you wish to apply to try and change this system. Yeah, Gwen Dog says that's the line. Get into the sidecar. I like it quite a bit, um, but this portion I think is sometimes missed in in media like this, uh, in fiction like this, where it skips to the part where we've already started the external fight, or we skip to right before the external fight, and we don't watch as the person goes from where Katniss does, which is this point of, you know, maybe not acceptance of the status quo. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't say, this is the right way to be in the world, but we don't catch up with Katniss in this moment where she's already like, okay, gonna take down the system, right? Because we don't, we have to watch that battle, otherwise we don't learn anything about the, those first vital stages of the process of, I mean, let's see, what do we, what's the right word to call it? There's a crass word to call it, but what's the right word to call it? I mean, action, I suppose I would say. There is, there is the internal side of action and it's so often skipped over but it's vitally important because each person has to make that journey. And the more we tell stories that skip that phase, the more we are not equipping people to deal with that phase. Mortal says, honestly, I feel the identity crisis. I have been compared to the TV character Bones from Bones my entire life, even as a two to three year old. Uh, and then when I realized that my chosen career path is very similar, along with the fact that I am writing a book, it kind of creeped me out. <laughs> Dramatized Mortal, finding some of these things about identity. Um, let me jump back in with Courier 6's uh, business here. Um, it's actually meshing really well with the Fallout New Vegas RP that I'm in right now, uh, focusing on some more morally garbage factions, but how realistically characters within them would act, how they can be locked into terrible circumstances, sometimes complicit or even actively participating in terrible things, but they just can't step away. It's their reality. They have to find a way to continue in it with the limited resources and knowledge that they have. I also find it a little telling and concerning that media reactions to Hunger Games at the time and since are inevitably focused on the love triangle aspect. This is about survival and morality conflicting, not about which boy Katniss likes more. The media reaction totally missed the boat. Indeed. Indeed. And we, you know, we see almost, almost in a, uh, a farcical mirror of the text itself where Katniss constantly has to focus on like, okay, I have to fight for my life here, but I also like, what does the media want to see? What does the media of Pan Am want to see? Oh, am I going to kiss him? Oh, am I not going to kiss him? Oh, is he going to kiss me back? Oh, we're in love. Right? She, this is not what should have to be going through her mind, but it, it has to be done for the cameras, Right? has to be done for the cameras. And then now, as, <laughs> as, we, as we see this book translated into other media, there was a pretty significant focus on that. 
it sort of did become about like what boy um, in a more significant way than I think the the book here has really uh, laid it out. In this, Katniss is. Katniss is a human being fighting for survival and knowing that part of that survival relies on her playing into a game that exists for the entertainment of others or at least in the service of others. Indeed. Indeed. See, this is what I mean. This is why I don't mind. There are other, like, I don't have a lot of people who, who pop in with, like, big long paragraphs, but when I jump over and I read something from Courier 6, I never have to worry, like, Okay, is this just going to be like a rambling bit of nonsense? Because when I get to the end of whatever Courier 6 has to say, <laughs> I read something pretty good. Um, and uh, a, a great moment in the conversation. So, as always, Courier 6, thank you. Orly Rose says, as a full-on staring down middle-aged adult, I'm impressed by the realization of empowerment given to the young in these books. Like, uh, uh, excuse me, in books like these. Because the world has established... Uh, has this established order. It knocks teens down and young adults and uh, uh, to be immature, but... Uh, oh, boy. Hold on. I got lost again. Sorry. And it's established order. Knocks down teens and young adults, immature and unequipped, but stories like these build character, and I love it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I really enjoy that these books are willing to take on some of those issues. And this is one of the ones that found a very neat balance between um, sort of being appealing to a to a, a younger demographic while also being um frankly posing some really excellent questions that you know at some point someone uh, by the time you reach my age you have to have considered these things otherwise you probably never will Natalie says yeah it was weird to me that the love triangle was the focus of in so many people's eyes um Katniss focused on herself first, and these boys play a factor in that, but she's not concerned about what feelings they have for her or hers for them. Yes, indeed. Yes, it is. It is. Um, her Katniss's relationship with romance is, for most of this, certainly up through the point where we currently are, her relationship with romance has been 99% survival. And even that sort of ties back into that prime aspect, like we talked about, Katniss's prime aspect of, I am a provider. I do so by hunting, but I'm a provider. That is my core, my prime aspect. Um, and this survival that she uh, is fighting for in the arena is a facet of that. Traumatized Modal says, I honestly hate love triangles. Like, it's not that hard. Just don't crush on two guys. <laughs> I see. Taking a bit more of a Watsonian dis uh, uh, displeasure in this. Fair enough, I suppose. Um, Orly Rose says, uh, The whole idea that people cannot be moral by internal or intrinsic means and must uh, have an elder administered toward uh, outward scaffolding of a belief system. Yes, yes. I think, uh, you know, we've talked so much, frankly. We've talked a ton about how um, these books are covering a period in people's lives where they have ceased to um, ceased to be sort of default assumed to hold the same. I like I like what you have to say here: scaffolding of scaffolding of belief, right? We can call it ideals, scaffolding of belief, what have you. Um, we watch as a lot of these characters are exiting a time in their lives when people are just assumed to. Your kid default assumption is you've got the same values or scaffolding of belief as your parents or your community or whoever. Um, 
now they're passing into this time in their lives when they are expected to have their own ideals, their own scaffolding of belief. Many people will expect them to continue to have the same, but it's expected to be their own, to be internalized. Um, and it is tested. And I find that this is very true of the real world. Even if it's not tested in the same ways, right? Let's not let's not goof around like, you know, everyone's, uh, everyone's out here fighting the Hunger Games, but ideals are tested. And they will continue to be tested. All right, folks. Thank you so very much for joining me here. Um, Y'all, I hope you've had a good time tonight. I certainly have. Uh, and I hope you will join me again next time. Uh, now, next week, I'll keep you all sort of posted via Discord. But uh, next week, uh, I may be doing a bit of traveling. We shall see on one of my stream days. Um, so we shall have to take a look at that. But just so you know, next week might be a little wonky. Um, I, will, I, will, uh, I will let you all know. I will let y'all know over in Discord precisely what the, the new schedule is. Gwendog says, quick stream again, it seemed like. And you know what? I wouldn't have said so. And then I just looked at the clock and it's only 6.30. It did not seem like it went that quickly on my end. Uh, and you know, the, the word counts. Like I said, I try to, I try to shoot for between ten and 12,000 words in an evening. That seems like a good stream number. And here I find myself, we've read 11,000 words. But yeah, that, like 6.30, that's like a... That's like a 10,000 or 9,000 word stream. Typically, six, being done by 6.30? Wacky. But we're not quite done yet. Folks, thank you so much for joining me here today. I love y'all, and I will see you later on.